You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to M Pavilion 2019. My name's Sam Redston. I'm the executive director of the project. And before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional custodians on the land which we meet today, the Yalakut Willem of the Boonwurrung people. The Boonwurrung are one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to the elders, past, present and emerging, and any who are with us here today. Now, today, this uh, talk is one of the most eagerly anticipated talks on our calendar, and it's a long calendar, four and a half months, over 400 events, starting as of now, with uh, the commissioner of the project, Naomi Milgram AO, speaking with our architect, Glenn Merkett AO. And uh, we're very fortunate to have I'm sorry, I want to get it right. Peter Madison, Peter Madison, architect and television personality, joining us in conversation here today. So over to you, Peter. Thanks very much. And hello, everyone. Welcome to this wonderful location. How good is it? Awesome, isn't it? And I'm very blessed to be sitting in this chair today, speaking to Glenn and Naomi um, on what is another great Melbourne day. And if any of you came to Friday night, you'll realise how good Melbourne can be. I, I reckon there's 2,000 people here for the opening on Thursday night. And it was, the guards were packed, and this little pavilion worked perfectly. So it's, it's an absolute delight. Um, these two people in front of me, uh, I'd, I'd classify them as Australian icons in our society, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and and uh, a couple of things about Glenn, and, and the introduction were cut short, but I want to point out that this is Glenn's 50th year of architectural practice, which in architecture is a milestone, no, no mean feat, let me tell you, being a practising architect. Um, and he's done, uh, this is his second Australian work uh, in Australia, um, which is, sorry, in Melbourne, second architectural piece in Melbourne. And the other one is the uh, Australian Islamic Centre at Newport. So this is a, a wonderful uh, achievement for the City of Melbourne to have another one of his works here with us. Um, he's got a swag of awards and acknowledgements, too long to even go through them. But um, uh, what I like is that, that uh, despite all these awards and, and uh, um, all these accolades, he's a sole practitioner. And again, in this world, to be a sole practitioner, be able to carry out quality work like Glenn's producing is, is unbelievable. Um, and more important than anything, I'm told that he has no Instagram, no email and no website. Now, how about that? I can vouch for that. <laughs> is he con I'm not contactable. He does answer text messages. <laughs> so that's about it. I don't think this works. Is that working? Is that working? Is that working? Well, it's all pretty true. Oh, hang on. We've got a technical hitch. Now you're speaking in double. We'll have to get that microphone fixed. Is there someone here on audio? Here's a replacement, Glenn, behind you. No, no, that's enough. Oh, that's okay. better. <laughs> and, and Naomi, um, other than being AO, is, is uh, honorary doctorates at RMIT Monash University of New South Wales. She's done a whole lot of work in the arts area, again, too long to mention. Uh, but uh, what I love is with, with, with Naomi's qualifications and her skill set is bringing people together to do extraordinary things. And if you're going, if you're here on Friday night, to be able to see... The, the launch of this event and be able to engage RMIT University, come and do a, a live fashion parade after an incredible opening was just a, a miracle. Um, we had Deborah Cheaton, 
performing a live song written for this pavilion. And she was here with the Indigenous Children's Choir just the last hour or so, performing more of her work. So uh, already this, this wonderful little facility is off and running with some marvellous events and programs. Again, with many thanks to Naomi. So I've got these two wonderful people sitting next to me. Now, what are we doing here today? I want to investigate a few things with Naomi and, and, and uh, Glenn if I can. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in working out uh, their view on the power of idea, the power of collaboration, the power of storytelling, the power of design. And, and these issues uh, I'd like to investigate, um, these four questions over the next uh, 45 minutes. And after that, I'd love to pull a few questions from the audience because I'm, I'm sure you'd all love to uh, have first um, uh, opportunity to speak to these two. So, the power of idea. Now, um, those involved with the creative pursuits know what a magical thing that is. And, and it's a fleeting uh, thing, very hard to grasp. It's, it's like a butterfly or a dream at times. And I, I'm just fascinated to find out from Naomi and then, then Glenn as to um, how they've managed to turn an idea of a facility like this, Naomi, question to you first, into reality because, you know, why in Pavilion? Why not painting sculpture? Uh, well, I like to do that too. Sure, sure. But the, the, the idea, to be able to grasp an idea and make it materialise, how do you do that? Well, for, I guess that's Glenn's aeroplane going overhead. <laughs> um, I think I took my inspiration clearly from the Serpentine Pavilion, which was a built form um, next door to the Serpentine Museum in um, London. And that Serpentine Pavilion has been built by the world's most famous architects over the last 18 years. And it serves as um, an independent venue next to the Serpentine Museum. So I'd already seen a very successful example of what architecture, great architects could bring to Oh, thank you. Um, could bring to um, a garden and how people could appreciate it and use it. Um, but when I was thinking about how this could be translated to Australia, I thought about the fact that there's very little um, that can be said about architecture and design that doesn't rely on the built form. And when people, um, when philanthropists work with artists or buildings, they don't tend to work with architecture and design as a starting point for the debate of what our cities can look like in the future. So I thought that the um, pavilion could serve as the built form to bring people together to have those conversations. And, and Naomi, the, the, this pavilion, uh, for those that don't know, is here till next March, and there's an, another idea that this pavilion and the ideas that go with it have, a, have another life. Yes, um, so this pavilion will be gifted to the City of Melbourne and will then um, work towards putting it in a permanent place. And certainly when we brief the architects, we do talk about this building having a second life and being activated for the City of Melbourne, for all the people of Melbourne to enjoy ongoing. And um, Naomi, this is the sixth of the pavilions. Yes. Um, and the idea is to engage with international architects, not just Australian architects, to, to bring to life this idea. Yes, I wanted to bring international architects. Is that yours, Glenn? Yeah, it's mine. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sending them off. Okay, thanks. Um, you'll understand why when Glenn talks about the aeroplane wing. Um, 
Uh, the first pavilion was designed by Sean Godsell, an Australian. The second pavilion was designed by Amanda Levite, the English architect. The third pavilion was designed by B. Jordan from Studio Mumbai. The fourth by Rem Coolhouse and David Ginotten from OMA. And the fifth by a Spanish architect, Carmen Pinos. Um, none of those international architects have built a building in Australia before. So it was very important to me that I actually facilitate the introduction of new ideas to both students and professionals and to give them the opportunity to have um, interaction with those architects as well. Yeah, and, and um, Naomi, finally, the idea of the Pavilion Second Life, they've yeah. gone on to some marvellous locations, Melbourne Zoo, Monash yeah. University, yeah. Hellenic uh, Museum, etc. Yeah. Yes, they have gone on and in fact part of the responsibility of those new venues is that they actually activate them and they have to be used all the time. And <clears throat> Glenn, ideas, we're interrogating the idea about ideas yeah. and if you could succinctly, I don't know there's a long story about why this is the shape it is and why it is presented the way it is. How, yeah. did you, how did you grab that idea and pin it down? Because in an architect's head, there's a lot swirling around. Yeah, there certainly is a lot swirling around us. Know what to discard is very important. Never be afraid of losing a good idea is a good starting point. Um, when Naomi first came to me uh, and invited me, I had to think about it. And it was about 10 minutes later, I said, okay, giving me two years to do it, whereas it normally was one year, and being a sole practitioner, I can't take things on immediately. But the wonderful thing about taking it on with two years, when you know the project and you know where it's going, it can float around in your head when you're doing all sorts of things. And so it gives one, one time to think about the possibilities. And so it might have been two or three months later, Naomi returned uh, to Sydney, a uh, very good friend of my architect wife, Wendy Lewin, and we're up there and Naomi wasn't expecting to see any drawings at this stage because I still had um, a year and nine months to go and uh, I presented the schemes. Uh, you know, there are, there's a footing grid underneath here running at 2.4 metres each way and it's essentially a square. And that's why many buildings have ended up on that square grid. And I thought, you know, here is the city, there is the river, here is north. Why wouldn't you have a building that stretched this way? Why would I have a, a rectangular? Why would, wouldn't I have a rectangular building? Now, as you all know, I rather like rectangular buildings because they give me a very long potential for the northern environment and the sun. And of course, in summertime, you can see where the shadow is here now, and wintertime, it'll go back to almost the last column. So when it's relocated, so long as the site that's chosen has a northerly aspect, then it will work. And of course, that is, the, that is a, a real consideration. And then when I showed Naomi these things, she said that one, which is this one. It's quite a pragmatic solution in many ways. In fact, I, I can confess to you when I first saw it coming up out of the ground, going a tra catching the tram up St Kilda Road, I looked across and I thought, it's just a bloody tent. That's all it is. Yeah, well, I want to just tell you that I looked up then the whole uh, questions of what is a tent. And you'll see in, a, in very many of the dictionaries, they're generally 
a, a, a structure made of poles and rope with fabric over them, tensioned and often elaborate, uh, and they largely open. And of course, uh, the tent in, in, in French Latin is, is, uh, comes from the butterfly, which is papillon, uh, and the, uh, the butterfly, uh, you know, is the wings of the butterfly and the moth, the wing, and the lightweight nature. And of course, in a tent, you get the fly over the tent, which comes from butterfly. And so the, the, the whole notion of almost every, from Middle English, Norman, Middle English, uh, Middle French, and, and up till now, the pavilion is totally and closely related to a tent. You'd be pleased to know I, I found it a lot more rewarding when I got it up close, because it's certainly more than a tent. This is a very sophisticated object. And I guess that the idea behind this is, is from a simplistic background, but it's a very high-tech building that's trim, taut and terrific. Yeah, now um, I want to mention something about that, because as I was developing this design that Naomi said, yes, this is the direction I want to go, I was concerned about it going beyond the footings. And of course, with negotiation with the builder that he knew was going to do it, he said, it's not a problem. We just put a couple of screw piles in and we can pull them out later. So that was, that was also very good. But then as you're drawing, you know, as an architect, you will know, there's a state that you go into and you most mention the word dream. It's actually a state of reverie. It's that state between sleeping and waking, and that state allows you to dream and draw at the same time, which is really beautiful. And as I was drawing it, and I did these sections of the roof and the structure, all of a sudden my mind went back to 1986 when I was in Mexico in a place called San Cristobal de las Casas, and a very good architect friend of mine said, They've discovered this beautiful ruin down in southern Mexico called Yaxalan. And I can get a pilot who's taking in people who are actually restoring the artwork down there in Bonampak. And I'm sure they can fly you in. And the beautiful thing is we flew in over the forest of Mexico. The jacarandas were out in the forest. It was just Fantastic. We, we landed in this very small airstrip which had 10 metres each side of the wingspan in the forest carved. And we landed up into Yakshalan, looked at this ruin over about two and a half to three hours. Lunchtime came and we came down and we said to the pilot, now where's a good place to have lunch in terms of the, the, not, the, not the building, but in the landscape. He said, definitely not in the forest. The forest is filled with malaria-carrying mosquitoes. Don't tell me it was under the aeroplane wing. So it was under <laughs> an aeroplane wing. And remember, the aircraft wing provided the first part of placemaking because it created shadow. And that shadow in a grassland became the place. Then on the shadow, we, we put down a tablecloth and the tablecloth established the second part of place. Now start looking at this building, start looking at the tablecloth, start looking at the shadow in this structure. And then at, at, the, at the final thing, we all sat around and we created a room. So we created not only place, but we created room, which is extremely beautiful. 
Then after lunch, they went back and I said, I want to just stay here and absorb this whole place. And I put my rucksack up against the wing, uh, the wheel of the aircraft, laid my head on that rucksack, looked back to Yakshalan, and there was this wing above me, this beautiful fabric, lightweight wing. And all of a sudden I said to myself, my God, I'm designing the experience. But so that's a, a very strong, specific idea that you're relaying to in your past. And I'm wondering, uh, with all the buildings you've done, which have been yeah. uh, extraordinary, is there that level of light, like, like lightning that strikes? That, no, that... no, it, this, was a, this was a very rare thing. But, you know, I don't do pavilions every day. <laughs> okay. So, that, which is... Also, I think the thing about the wing that intrigued me was that Glenn used that as an opportunity to work with new materials, which... Can you talk a little bit about that? Surely. Sorry. Yes. That's all right. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is this, that knowing that a tent... I'd, I'd looked at the definition of a tent, so I knew it was important to have this fabric-type roof, and I've never worked with, with membranes, not ever. But, you know... The wonderful thing is that if one is given the opportunity of investigating beyond what, what one has developed in one's career, and remember, I'm going on 84 years of age, and so I'm still... Really? Yeah, I'm still enthusiastic. And so uh, I thought, why not? Let me develop some of these new things. And so I looked at the possibility of membranes and the membrane roof which is a Ferrara fabric, and the ceiling is an aircraft fabric. So it's the fabric that, that, that sheets all light aircraft when you're using this sort of material rather than a duralium and the other metals. So I thought, how am I going to do this? And I remembered that my very good friend, Jonathan Temple, uh, is, a, is a great sailor of small skiffs, and he makes his own sails, and he worked with Richard Laplastria in Sydney on developing some windows and other building components and working with the aircraft fabric and the membrane. So I spoke to Richard, and I said, Richard, is it okay if I work with Jonathan because you've done this work? And I said to Richard, I will acknowledge you that this is very important, what you've done, that allow me to start to investigate it further. And Richard said, go ahead. And so Jonathan was able to guide me in terms of the stressing and then introduced me uh, to patterns uh, in Sydney, um, uh, uh, Tom Gaston in, of patterns, and w with his wonderful computer-generated uh, work of showing stresses and showing where the, 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 the building, the roof would take shape and make sure we didn't get ponding. And again, Tom said, look, we've got to have the roof so that it's curving all the way through. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I don't want that. I want the curve to come over there because I know it has to be curved for its stressing. But I want it to be straight from that point on. And he didn't want to do it. I said, Tom, I want you to investigate it. I want you to do it. Now, I learned from uh, Christian Gullikson in Finland that Alto always worked, and Alto is that great Finnish architect, he always worked with the straight line, then curve, then a straight line again, and another curve, never a curve only, or a curve following a curve. Because the straight line reinforces the quality of the curve, and the quality of the, of the curve reinforces the, the straight line. And, you know, Tom worked at it and worked at it, and got it. And then he, I saw him, when the roof was all up, 
just finished, he was down here. I didn't know he was here. And he came to me and he said, I thank you for forcing me to look at this new angles of working with the membrane. And it's worked. And he said, it's opened up for me to do many more buildings in a different way. And, and Glenn, um, we're talking about the power of collaboration here. Yes. And, and uh, you've managed to, to snare and capture some of Melbourne's best and brightest to make this come to fruition. Yes. Um, you mentioned Jonathan Temple, but Julian Featherston, y yes. uh, whose mother and father we all know. Um, yes. Uh, and, Ju and, Ju and Julian was phenomenal. We've used Julian in our uh, office. He's a, a he, master he, at, at high-end technique, uh, computer and, generation. And, and, and he was able to do these beautiful generated computer drawings that all the components were in colour. So the, this was a different colour to that metal. And so you could track the whole building through colour. And the beautiful thing about it is that was translated directly into shop drawings for all the building. Yeah, very clever. So we, we're talking about the power of collaboration. Yes. People like Julian, Tony Isaacson, the Tony, builder, and John the, Gollings, who's just done the photography, yeah, Kane, uh, Chris yeah. Connell, who's done yes. the furniture, yep. um, and the structure. Was it Oracon did the furniture? Uh, no, a Acom. did Acom, the structure. And I'd like to identify there uh, Nigel Burden, yeah. who did a, a wonderful job. And I said to Nigel in the very early stages, and all the co collaborators in Naomi's office of Alexandra, Louise, and and uh, uh, and Jennifer. Uh, and Sam, uh, I said at the time, this is going to be a very, very simple looking building, but the other face of simplicity is complexity. And we, in, it's not simplistic, it's about complexity appearing very simple. And therefore, every detail we do, we must minimize the number, we must be able to make each one of those details working hard, very hard. And Nigel came up as well to analyse it for all the beautiful... The structure behind here is beautiful. And then there's the lighting people, uh, Blue Bottle, where, that did a, a very beautiful job of it as well. And, of course, Naomi, there's the other side of collaboration, which is making all this happen. And, um, you know, you've managed to garner a lot of um, City of Melbourne support and, and other partners who've come in to make this program possible. Could you talk a bit about that? Sure. I mean, when you start a new idea, you don't have any partners. You actually are sitting with a new idea. The only way to bring that to life is to actually go to the City of Melbourne, go to government and say, this is a new idea, we want to bring it to the city. And then we had to find collaborators who would work with the building, but more importantly, after the building was secured, we had to work with collaborators who would give us the program, the genesis of the program that we wanted. Um, in the beginning, we partnered with um, the Melbourne Festival, we've partnered with every music organisation, every book reading organisation, every Indigenous organisation. So we've progressed over the past six years to, I think Sam can correct me, but over 500 collaborators now. It's extraordinary. And we call that our collective creativity because without each other, we actually can't do anything. So our success with the building and with the program is all about us collectively having a vision and bringing it to fruition. Because you have an expression, don't you? It's about collective, collective creativity I do. Be, being bigger than the individual. Absolutely, much, much bigger than the individual. And you can't do anything without the partnerships that bring all of this together. We're also talking about um, uh, the power of storytelling and um, 
that's a big part in, uh, of our total history. And we're in a world that's dominated by technology, computer technology, and this building and this program uh, talks to a different way of collaborating and, and, and storytelling. And it's about opinion, of debate and disagreement. And, and the program that you've put together here, enabled by the building, is, is um, talking about uh, a, a much bigger way of communicating between each other. And Naomi, you've, you've, the program involves dance, involves music, opera, um, children's programs. Um, Yoga. You know, it's just morning. such a rich program. And it's, and it's, and it's not, it's, it's traditional way of, of communicating with each other. Well, it allows for us to communicate in any way which we like. Uh, one of the things that we set out to do was to create what we called a utopian space, a space where anybody could come, anybody could do anything that they liked. We would work with anybody who wanted to say anything about architectural design collectively or individually and give them the opportunity to have a space. That's all free, which is just it's amazing. It's all free, yeah, absolutely. And, and now, the, 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 uh, this idea about collective creativity is extended beyond this pavilion. And, and when you're now involved with something called Living Cities Forum, which yep. started in 2017 and is yep. in Melbourne now in Sydney. Yep. Um, and it's an extension to the program, the, the opportunities that we have here to continue the debate. Absolutely. And the Living Cities Forum really is bringing to Australia the best minds in the world, incorporating them with Australia's best minds and trying to influence the way planners, architects and people who work in the cities to imagine what the cities of the future are going to look like and how we need to progress rather than just thinking that we're going to continue the way we are. And this, this program is very accessible. The other pro, the, the Living Cities, it's um, in a venue. This being outdoors is, is so accessible to everybody, which yeah. makes this um, unique. I, well, that was their idea in the beginning, that we would choose a spot um, which, where we could have transport, where we could actually... Was it hard? Was it hard finding and getting permits and approvals? You know, oh, well, we have to get 37 <laughs> permits every single year. So they get, are the same permits. I wonder why... But you we get a lot of knockback that. trying to set up a building like this in a public park, I would have thought. Um, one, of the, um, one of the reasons that I picked this park in the very beginning was not only its transport, but it is one of the most beautifully sited parks in Melbourne, where it has the Botanical Gardens, Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, obviously the Arts Precinct, transport. But what was really important to me was in the late 80s, um, John Truscott, who at that time was the director of the Spoleto Festival, which became the Melbourne Festival, he actually activated this park in the late 80s with three open pavilions. Two of them were called Botanica and one was a Chinese tea room. So it also allowed us to honour John Truscott's memory. And so at the same time going to the city talking about that, they had this... Um, in their minds and they understood what this meant for people, that John Truscott had done that. He had opened the Melbourne Festival to all Melbournians. It wasn't restricted to being in venues and this was something that resonated with them which made it considerably easier. Good to have a, uh, someone breaking the ice, isn't it? Absolutely. For you. Yeah. And, Glenn, we're talking about the story, the power of storytelling, and, and I know you're very connected to Indigenous culture and your architecture has been very much... Um, influenced and born uh, the principles of that, uh, that, that civilization and that, that, um, that connection to land. Um, you, you're also 
uh, telling your own stories through um, education and and um, to young people. And you've got uh, you do a two week master class at the Arthur and Yvonne Boyd Centre, um, and and you also teach at uh, University of New South Wales and Yale and Washington and a whole lot of other guest spots. How important is that that one to one storytelling to you? Yes, well, because I don't employ anybody, any anybody. Um, it means You're that keeping it simple. I'm keeping it very simple, uh, but made very complex for myself, uh, let me tell you. But I have a, a feeling of a responsibility to at least for students, no matter where they are, uh, for a start, I must say that I don't build outside of Australia. I made a very clear policy when I started that I will build only in don't, Australia. Don't like airline travel? No. I'm fed up with the damn A380, but I love it when they fly over the top and I'm not on it. Um, uh, but but the, the, the thing is that by teaching younger minds, then at least you can give them the opportunity of a way of thinking, not the way, but a way of thinking. And I like them to be able to take those principles, uh, principles of, of the essentials, I'm very interested in architecture of the essential. I don't like the, the quality of superfluous architecture. I'd like to tear half of the junk that's off a lot of these buildings that you see around. I won't I'd say... You're pointing at one of my buildings. No. Uh, 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 Hang on. No, no. Thing? I didn't say where. I'm not going to tell where, but you all know where. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm afraid that... that, that Whilst I wouldn't want it to happen, but an earthquake would be very good to shake all the rubbish off. And so, with your teaching, Glenn, uh, you do a different way of teaching the way most universities teach. It's, it's again, coming back to this t storytelling idea. It's hands-on, it's one-to-one, -one, it's, it's um, uh, imparting knowledge through your own knowledge. Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, I have had a professorship for about 14 years at the University of New South Wales and I run a third year program uh, in last project in design because it's the time the students are open-minded, just open-minded still, and by the time they're in fifth year they've got, the minds have almost gone closed and uh, at least you can actually get through. And I give them a project that is very complicated, that's the sort of project that probably a final year student would find even difficult, but it's no, no point coddling them. It's a matter of throwing them into the deep. I take a real sight, I take a brief, I take them away, I live with them for four days, and then they come back and meet once a week and see every student for half an hour every week for one semester. And it, it is a very rewarding way of teaching. It's a one-to-one. -one. Uh, it's incredibly important. Now, the university hierarchy don't understand this so well. They think you can be in a class of 150 and you can teach from a lectern. Well, you can't teach architecture that way. Do you know, um, I went to RMIT University and um, one of the great... I'm sorry. <laughs> One of the great. <laughs> no, we, we weren't. We had some dark times. Don't worry. We're, but we, I remember one particular uh, hero lecturer 
uh, a guy called Joseph Bradley, and he took... Um, uh, I, know, I know a couple of others there you wouldn't talk like this. No, about. no, but I'm talking about a good one. But his way of teaching was to take us overseas and witness firsthand the power of great building. And he put his job online each year to resign from RMIT to be able to take us overseas. And he had to apply for his job when he came back because it was out of the ordinary what he was doing. But I have to tell you that the uh, effect that it had on uh, myself and, and, and my uh, fellow colleagues at that time has left an indelible mark because you were experiencing things firsthand. Not, not through slides or books, nothing wrong with books, but it's, it's, it's uh, feeling the heat on your face, feeling... You're right. The, you know, and, and um, it's, it's, uh, he, he is uh, a giant in, in, in my history and in RMIT's history. Look, there's no question to see the work in reality, you understand scale, you understand materiality, you understand morphology, you understand proportion, you, you understand prospect, you understand refuge, and you understand the reality of, of, of being there. That it's so beautiful that photographs can't give you. I was just about to say that. No, I wasn't. <laughs> well spoken. But it's exactly right, exactly right. Um, I just wanted to talk also about the power of design because um, it's what Naomi and, and Glenn have uh, spent a life um, studying, appreciating and engaging with. And um, it, it's uh, something that touches us all, but a lot of people don't understand. And it's just such a powerful thing in our society because it changes our appreciation of the world we live in and changes the world we live in. And, and so, Naomi, I want to ask you, what was it in your childhood or your upbringing that made you so engaged in this this? It's brilliant. Architecture is not the most um, understood or the most supported of professions. Some call it the ultimate art. But uh, most people, uh, as we mentioned before, would collect paintings to hang on their wall. But um, what is it that, about the built environment that, that really has, has made you go down this path? I think the thing that I love about design the most is that it's so solution-oriented. It doesn't matter whether it's the design of a fork or a building or a cup or a plate the things that you can feel and hold in your hand. You don't understand what's, why it's such a beautiful design, but it feels calm and it feels right as against something that's not designed so beautifully. And immediately when you walk into this pavilion, you can feel that the solutions are right. You don't actually have to understand that it faces north and that the sun will stop at the first lot of um, stone. What's your favourite detail? I actually love the lighting, I have to say, and the way it lights up like a lantern. It's very, very special. But, and it makes you feel really calm. And I think it makes you feel calm because it's so beautifully designed and there's nothing that looks out of place. Every detail is just there because it has to be there. And I think it's what Glenn talks about in terms of it's a, it has all the essential elements and there's no wastage. And that's what I love about great design. Can you be my client? <laughs> no, she's mine. <laughs> Let's have an arm wrestle. <laughs> is she the best client you've ever had, Glenn? You have to say, you have to I, say I, yes. I hope a few of the others I've worked with are not here, but yes. <laughs> and I'll share, I'll no, share. No, look, let me tell you, I have been privileged with wonderful clients and there's a reason for it. And it was, um, it was given 
to me by my father, who was very powerfully influential in my thinking. He said to me, as I was entering practice, you must remember to start off the way you would like to finish and remember that for every compromise you knowingly make in your work, now that's not about arrogance, that is about doing something less than one is capable of, then the result of that built work represents the quality of your next client. Now, it's a truism. So if you do things less than you're capable of, there are going to be people who like that work. And that's the work you'll get. If you do work that's the best that you can do, and it works out to be respected, regarded well, they're the sort of clients that come. So we do make our bed, and we have to lie in that bed. <laughs> and and you, you have a saying, effort, love, suffering. Yes. Which you go through. Um, is that why you're losing your hair? No, no, I lost it year before that. Before, <laughs> I, it's only suffering. Tell, uh, us about, <laughs> tell us about effort, love, suffering, because yeah. Vitruvius said strength, function, beauty, which is firmitas, uh, utilitas yeah. and venitas. Yes. But, but you have a different philosophy. Yes, well... Um, I met in 1973. I had a travel grant and I met great Spanish architect, Jose Cadurc. And he said to me, I tell my students, you must put first, into your work it must be effort. Second, must be love. And third, and very Spanish Catholic, suffering. And even if the work is not great, it will show care and it will show dedication. And I've realised that, that architecture is a difficult occupation. It takes huge amount of time. It takes a disproportionate amount of one's time. But you've got to love it to give it. And you know, there's a great Aboriginal statement. Um, you must give it away to keep it. And that's why I teach, you must give it away to keep it. Now, you were talking at questions about uh, the design of a building and what is design. That, and of course, uh, if you look at this building, one of the consequences of the design is the site that is extremely important. And instead of locating the building up into the forest there, we pulled the building out so that it could breathe to that side and to this side. But the consequence of that is that when you're there or when you're up there, the, actually the landscape flows through the building and the building doesn't occupy the space. So it's the thinking that allows one to design as a response to the idea. And I think that's really important to, to know what is required and then responding. And it's about an architecture of response not about architecture of imposition. And there's a hell of a lot of architecture about ego, about imposition. And I call it now the Kath and Kim architecture, which says, says to me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And I'm not interested in that architecture. I think it's terrible. And the best architecture, you go past and hardly see it, and you think, gee, there's something about that. And the more I look at it, the more I appreciate it. And the more I appreciate it, I recognise the better it gets, if you understand what I'm saying. Well, well spoken.
And thank you, Kath and Kim, for that lovely, lovely idea. And, and um, just before I throw to the floor, and I hope some, someone's got a few questions out there to throw to these two, but um, uh, uh, going back through your work, Glenn, uh, I had a little bit of time to go back at all the projects you've done, and it appears to me that um, your focus is on shelter, uh, roof form, ground plane, location, materiality, and very often, looking at the sketches that you've done over the years, that's where a lot of the, the, your thinking seems to be applied. And it's not so much elevation. And, and I, it's interesting, isn't it? As an architect, I'm always worried about how it will present, you know, what you're looking at vertically. You look at Glenn's work, it's all about roof form, water. How water works is a big generator in Glenn's work, I think. The way it falls, the way it's collected, and how it forms the roof, the way the wind passes over a building. So a lot of work in terms of the canopy, but the elevation, in fact, I look at your first work, like it was done in 1969, mm -hmm. uh, the Levette House in, in um, New South Wales. De Devitt House, yes. And it's all brick, just a brick facade, but it was based on a courtyard and experience once you moved into the building with a pyramidal roof in the centre of the building. Mm -hmm. And so it was not about... You were completely disinterested in terms of the way it presented to the public. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me that um, that's a hallmark of your work. Yeah. Um, that's a very nice perception, I might say, because not everybody recognises this. When we did the Boyd Centre, that's Wendy Lewin, Reg Lark and I did the Boyd Centre, I made certain that we did not do a single elevation until a week before the working drawings were to start. But what I do all the time is section. And in the se vertical section, you understand how the wind moves. You understand how the, the sunlight moves. You understand how the light moves. You understand how you enjoy prospect and refuge. You understand materiality. You understand everything through section and plan, of course, this section as well. One's a vertical section, the other horizontal section. And so it can also give you sight lines to views. It can give you sight lines to views this way. And of these days, I take a three-dimensional photograph of a site, I put all the photographs together, I put myself in the middle of it, and I can see exactly, when I design a building, what room will look at what, and at what altitude I can take it, take it, take, take the view to. So it's really important, the section. So elevation is almost inconsequential to me. That's why, look at me, look at me, look at me, has no, no purpose in my life. But I look around here and every building says, look at me, or pretty much every building is saying, look at me. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's reasonable. I think the important thing is that the building is the junction of the rational and the poetic. So that must contain the rational as the junction with the poetic. It's not about imposition, it's about response. These are the sort of things I'm really interested in, and I think they're reality. That's reality. There's a lot of nonsense going on, and the computer is the problem because they think it generates the, the design. And the computer is a very beautiful, wonderful tool. I use it all the time, but it can't be the generator of the design. It can, it can analyze program, it can, it can do wonderful things for documentation. It's an, it's a, it's a, an instrument, it's nothing more than a board and T-square, done in a beautiful way, and things further. But the computer has no emotion. Can you get emotion out of a mouse? 
It's pretty hard. Pretty hard, isn't it? Glenn's but, trying. But but when when you're drawing with a pencil and whether you lay it flat or up, it it actually produces more than a line. It produces quality, quality things. And that's what's beautiful. And that's what's beautiful about drawing. And the beautiful about the mind is the eye hand thinking. And read the book, all of you. The, print, the, the book by Johanny Palasma, The Thinking Hand. Anybody who's doubtful about the, the hand drawing and our thousands of years of learning to draw with eye hand, read this book and you'll see how the neuro, so neurophysiologists and, and the neuroscientists have established that eye hand is an essential part of our development. I recommend all of you to look at Palazza, P-A-L-L-A-S-M-A-A. Write it down. And, and, and the thinking hand, Wiley Press. Every student of mine has to read it. Okay, Thank you. Okay. Uh, well spoken. Now, um, I would like to uh, invite anyone to, to uh, ask a question of either Naomi and Glenn. Um, please don't be shy. Uh, we've got another 10 minutes or so. There's a lady right at the front. It was a, a very hesitant hand. Thank you very much. Hello. Yes. Hi. Hi, Glenn. Uh, I'm actually an international student and uh, studied in Melbourne University. I'm from landscape department. So my question, uh, how could the landscape designer to cooperate with the architects yeah. better? And we are sort of working across the department and work as a whole team rather than like separating the team architects in their work and we're doing our work like that. It's a that. Very, yeah. very good, very important question. It's about landscape architecture and architecture. And of course, um, I've had a lot to do with landscape. I love landscape and if I wasn't an architect, I'd be a landscape architect, an absolutely honorable occupation. Now, I taught at the University of Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, University of Phil uh, in Philadelphia in the USA for a number of years under Ian McHarg, the great uh, Scottish-American landscape architect. And out of that, we were able to combine architecture students and landscape students in my program, which was wonderful. And when architecture doesn't take into account landscape, Architects, the architecture is poorer for it. The idea of deep structure in landscape is extremely important and relevant. And we must know about the type of soil conditions we're working in. We must understand the ge ge geology, the geomorphology, the water table, the water patterns. We must understand the soil conditions, the depth of soil conditions, the trees that will grow in those areas. The trees that grow in there bring the particular sort of insects. The particular sort of insects bring the type of type of birds. And it has been shown that all this involves the landscape being close to a building for your mental well-being is incredibly important. And they found that in, in hospitals, the, the people who are looking out onto a, a tree and seeing birds, the recovery, they've now shown absolutely the recovery is so much faster than the person who's in a bed looking at a ceiling. So landscape is critical. Thanks, Glenn. And there's another person back here with the microphone. Is this, is this, is this working? Okay. Where are you, sir? Could you stand up, please? 
simple Thank you. question, which may not get a simple answer. Do you like Federation Square? Do you like Federation Square? Well, I can ask Naomi to answer. I'll so leave so that I to Glenn, Glenn's I Glenn's response. I think I'll leave that to Glenn. <laughs> uh, you're a coward. <laughs> because I know what you said to me as we went past it today. No need to repeat it. There's my answer. <laughs> Looks like that's going to be it. Is there any other questions? Put your hand up tall so I can see. Okay, in a moment, madam, so we can get... There's one up the back here. Thank you. Speak um, right, right into the microphone, please. This one's for Naomi. Um, often the architecture is a response to the brief and the site and a few other things, but I'm interested in... You've done this a few times now. What would be the um, a component of the brief that you think brings to life a great piece of architecture? Uh, in these circumstances with the M Pavilion, I was very keen to have a very, very open brief. So when we started with the first one, we started with 14 metres square um, underneath here. What's it called, Glenn? The footings. The, the footings and gridding so that we had water and electricity. And that was the base. Now, after having that, which is what the city required us to do, within the 30 metre circle that they gave us to work within after the 37 permit. Um, my brief was to each architect, you can do anything you like. It has to have a roof in Melbourne though. It must have a roof. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to enjoy the space as much. Um, but I was very specific in going to particular architects each of whom had an individual language, an, a unique architectural language, so that I was very clear that each expression would be different. So as Glenn says, there have been some similarities and his is the first one that is 30 metres long, longitudinal. Yeah, and it, it goes right to the 32 metre diameter. Okay. The so it goes right to the 32 metre edge of the circle that we're given. Um, so his was the first one that was a longitudinal, um, but I was very clear that each could be its own expression in the park. And actually, if you look at the way Glenn has done this and you listen to the way he talks about it, he was the first, going back to your question about landscape architecture, he was the first architect who didn't want to involve a landscape architect with him he wanted this to almost act like on the landscape so that it was permeable all the way through, whereas each other architect worked with a landscape architect. In fact, these mounds are the result of the first one where they dug the footings out for Sean's. These mounds are the result of that because we didn't want to take the earth away from here. Thank you, Naomi. There's a gentleman back here. Thank you. Hi, hi. My name is Rodrigo from Brazil with Luisa too. Uh, I have a question to Glenn. Um, if you could go back in time and give a, um, uh, how do you say, a tip or something about architecture to your younger self, um, what, what would you say to yourself? Well, that's a, 
I, I, it's a long way to go back for me. <laughs> and not quite so far for you, I can see. <clears throat> um, one of the great difficulties today is the level of anxiety uh, for younger architects in being able to achieve uh, the sort of work that they, they would love to achieve. Now, I would say that I was given very good advice. Again, I come back to my father. And he said to me, son, remember never to be in a rush to be successful. And if it should ever come, handle it with kid gloves. Now, the important thing about that is there's a tendency now that everybody wants to be able to get to being great architects without the effort. And let me assure you of one thing. There are very few architects in the world who can achieve greatness as a consequence of their brilliance only. Most of us are plotters. And I just work damned hard. And I don't give up easily. Tenacity of purpose is critical. When you have a council that rejects your work, you don't put your tail between your legs and go, you fight. Because if you've done something that has clarity, that is reasonable, that responds to the site very well, then you know you've, you've got a good chance. You have VCAT, I've been to VCAT here, I have, we have the Land and Environment Court to fight the cases. I've had 13 Land and Environment Court cases. And so I've been very successful, I might say. I won't tell you how successful, but I've been very successful, like about 99.9%. .9%. And that, that is the way that you hang on. And given that you're going to have to hang on in spite of the potential of a whole lot of people wanting to push you aside and refuse what you're doing, you hang on. So my, 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 my real statement to you is uh, tenacity of purpose, hanging on, but also respect for other people's thinking, respect for other people's way of doing things, respect if a council officer doesn't want you to do something, Discuss it through first before you go to court because you get an idea in that discussion of what the issues might be. And remember, there are many solutions to each project and each, each idea uh, and it's a matter of selection. And sometimes to lose a good idea, there's always a better one. And so my view is don't get, get over anxious push on, even when things are feeling terrible, get up, lick your wounds and get on with it. And that's what I've done all my life. And I can't see any alternative from, from, for the future as different from the past. Wow. I don't think we're gonna, we should wrap up after that, I think. <laughs> um, look, I, I, is there someone else who is waiting? The girl with the striped shirt, I know you... Last question, sorry. And we've had our back to you the whole time. Apologies. 
I haven't. I haven't. I've been sideways. Oh, I have. So this is the last question, please. Thank you. Yeah, it's on. Um, you build a lot in fairly remote Australian locations. What are your thoughts on building in a landscape that's essentially designed to burn? And how do we work with that rather than against it? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, yes, I do build in remote landscapes, uh, like this one here, for example. Um, and uh, depending upon those remote landscapes, I'm very conscious of the materials. Now, I have uh, designed buildings now that are in flame zone. And so I use materials that are appropriate to the flame zone conditions, which include uh, fire screens, fire shutters, uh, all those things. And they all work uh, for the purpose as we understand it from the requirements. And I've given more for the requirements, such as in the fire shutters, I, I, I include uh, a calcium silicate, which is a material that inside a metal, uh, metal sheeting for the fire, uh, fire shutters. And that you can put a blowtorch on one side and 20 millimeter thick material, you can put your hand on the other side of this blowtorch and the heat is only warm on the other side. So I'm also working with those sort of materials, working with fire. And so, I, I, for example, I did a house in 1973 in a fire zone in Terry Hills. The roof was designed to have a, a 250 millimetres of water on it completely at, for all time. And, and, and all around the house were, were sprinklers fed from a swimming pool. A fire came through that house in about 1978 and my client rang me and said, Glenn, I've got four 44-gallon drums of petrol up in the feed shed. What should I do with them? And, and the fire's on its way. It's coming through the, the Karingai Chase. What can I do? And I said, look, I'm, I'm not your fire engineer, Laurie. Uh, I don't know what to do. All I'd say is it's a well from away from the house. Make sure you're well away from it when it goes up. Anyway, about... A half an hour later, he rang me, said, the sprinklers work fantastically. The house is like an oasis. Every area around me is burnt out, and I've got a, this big circle around me of bushland that's absolutely green still. And I said, what did you do with the fuel? He said, I rolled it into the house. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> so, so if you want to know what do I do, that's what I do. Well, um, what a fantastic afternoon, everybody, and what a wonderful place to be. We are blessed to have this building at, at our doorstep for everyone to use, and I certainly hope you all engage with the programs that are going to occur, occur here over the coming months. Um, it's been a pleasure for me sitting next to two, two of these Australian icons, giants in our society. I thank you so much for what you've done here in, in Victoria and in these gardens for the next few months. Uh, if you could all join me in thanking Glenn and, and also for, for sharing his thoughts and for Naomi for being so generous, being here today and, and sharing the journey. Thank you.
and we're still good friends. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.